Real quick, guys, I made a Facebook page for this podcast. So if you'd like to see fun facts and more pictures throughout the week of the trees I talk about, then find me at facebook.com slash myfavoritetrees. Now, on to the show. Hello and welcome to another episode of My Favorite Trees. My name is Thomas and I love trees. This week is part two of my biggest trees theme. Last week I covered the world's tallest tree, the Coast Redwood, and on this episode I'll be talking about the world's biggest tree by volume, the giant sequoia. Because the sequoia is so closely related to the redwood, and because factors for qualifying something as the biggest tends to be a little controversial, I'll mostly be covering how this giant is able to stand out in a forest of competitors. But there will of course be time to talk about the massive influence these trees have played in our lives. The giant sequoia is often touted as the largest living thing on earth, but that title actually comes with a couple asterisks at the end. The main asterisk specifying that it is the largest living thing by volume, and that is an important distinction. It's not the tallest, that's the coast redwood, it's not the widest, that would either belong to the baobab or the Montezuma bald cypress, the largest thing by mass is Pando the aspen colony, and the largest by area is the one that's not a tree, but a fungus nicknamed the humongous fungus. So, when we say something is big, we have to say how. The other asterisk that comes with the largest living thing title is how much of it is living. Last week I went into the fluid dynamics of trees, and mentioned that the tissues that act as pipes for water are actually dead. A good amount of wood in a living tree is just dead support. So if an amount of the tree's volume isn't actually living, is it still the largest living thing? Or is that question just an excuse to be pedantic and not something that really matters? I will leave that for you, dear listener, to decide. Either way, if you look at a giant sequoia, you'd have a hard time telling me that isn't a massive tree. Surely you've at least seen pictures of these monsters. Maybe you've seen pictures of either a redwood or a sequoia, but aren't quite sure how to tell them apart. Oftentimes, I see their names used interchangeably, and some folks don't even know that they're two different trees entirely. Here's how they compare. The redwood tends to be taller. They are able to grow to almost 400 feet tall, while the tallest sequoia only just over 300 feet, and tends to average closer to 200 feet tall. I know, what a short guy. But the sequoia is going to be wider in most cases. While the average redwood is just 10 to 15 feet thick on average, the sequoia trunk is often thicker than 20 feet, and in some cases more than 30 feet thick. There used to be some redwoods that were both thicker and taller than sequoias, but they've died either due to toppling in the wind or being logged, so now the sequoia holds more weight. You could also look at the bark of both trees. The redwood tends to have redder bark, while the giant sequoia's bark often appears more orange in hue. And the bark of the sequoia is just as fire resistant as the redwood, but even thicker. It can be as thick as three feet. The closer you look, the more differences you'll find. The redwood's leaves are linear, like a wider, flattened, short needle, but the sequoias are called all-shaped because they tend to have a sharp taper at the end. This gives them the appearance similar to an awl, A-W-L, which is the sharp metal pokey stick that leather workers use. 
or like an ice pick if you're not a leather worker. If you're familiar with the Norfolk Island Pine, which is a popular Christmas present that isn't actually a pine, they have the same leaf shape. The cones are the last physical difference I'll cover. The sequoias are actually a bit bigger than the redwoods. We're talking more around chicken egg size, which in my opinion is still a very small seed carrier considering the size of the organism these seeds turn into. Just like the redwood, the giant sequoia needs a lot of moisture to sustain such a massive form. But unlike the redwood, the giant sequoia actually grows much further inland, all the way on the western slopes of the Sierra Nevada mountains in eastern California. They aren't getting that same fog drip from the ocean, but what they do get is snow. Around 200 inches of snow falls annually in Sequoia National Park, and these trees take the moisture in whatever form it comes. Another unique feature is how they grow in their native range. Rather than forming consistent forests made up of sequoias, they are almost always mixed with other tree species, often forming small groves. I honestly don't know which is cooler, between being in a forest completely surrounded by incredibly tall red trees, or hiking through a normal section of woods in the mountains and cresting a hill only to find this one section has several massive trees almost forming their own communities. It's like you got lost and stumbled into some hidden land of the fairies, where the ancient spirits of the wilderness still live separate and apart from the destructive conquering ways of society. And you say to no one in particular, what is this magical place? And the trees speak into your mind, not with words or images, but with subtle manipulation of emotions, and they communicate to you, this is one of the last pure and ancient places in the world. You can stay if you'd like, and cease to age or be burdened by the weight of cultural obligations, but you will never see your loved ones again. And if you choose to not stay, to return to those who wait for you, know that you will never again be able to find this place of forbidden whimsy, and the life you live will seem to lack a certain luster as you long for what could have been. What do you choose? If you're looking to find your way into these ancient pockets of wonder, the National Park Service and the U.S. Forest Service are doing what they can to protect them for you. There are several federal sites across the Sierras, like Sequoia and Kings Canyon National Parks, Sequoia National Forest, Yosemite National Park, and more, where you can plan a trip to meet these massive trees. They're also planted ornamentally around the world. They won't get to be quite as massive as in their home groves, but if the environment gets enough precipitation, then they will still likely be one of the biggest trees around. My first sequoia encounter was actually in Oregon, where several of them were planted around the University of Portland campus. If you'd like to see the biggest sequoia, that is, the biggest living thing on Earth, asterisk, asterisk, then look no further than Sequoia and Kings Canyon National Parks, home of the General Sherman tree. This bad boy is 311 feet, or 95 meters tall, and over 36 feet, or 11 meters thick at its base. For comparison, the Statue of Liberty from ground to torch is 6 feet shorter, and her waist is just a foot less thick. I've never been to the Statue of Liberty, so this comparison doesn't do much for me. It just always seems like a common large thing to compare size to. The Latin name of the giant sequoia is Sequoia dendron giganteum, which for all intents and purposes just means giant sequoia. The three closely related trees, this coast redwood and dawn redwood, are all in separate but similarly named genera. Could they be in the same genus? I don't know enough about the nitty-gritty details to make that call, but I just feel like it'd be easier, you know? I'm sure there's just enough genetic differences where scientists have to be like, 
Okay, yes, these are all the last three remaining species from the family of a bygone era where humongous trees were more normal, but back in their day, they were quite different, I tell you. And I'll just let them make that call. One last detail is that these trees live a long time. Again, not the longest living trees, that would be the bristlecone pine, but there have been sequoias cut down that were estimated to be around 3,200 years old, and it is believed that there are some living sequoias as ancient as 4,000 years old. And over the millennia, the giant sequoia has stood as an example of what humans can learn from nature. It is estimated that humans have occupied the California region for as long as 10,000 years. Native tribes who lived in the southern Sierras would have been living near and interacting with giant sequoias for generations. Unfortunately, when western settlers arrived in the 19th century looking for gold, many of these tribal peoples were pushed out of their ancestral lands and scattered. Many of the smaller groups in this population have since died out, their culture, histories, and legends lost to time. One of the tribes whose culture has survived and still lives in the area is the Thule River people. To them, the land has always been a large part of their culture. Their folklore states that the eagle was the creator of all things, and they lived at the top of a tall tree in the sky. After the eagle created all the animals and people in water, the tree in the sky descended to the earth and became the first of many trees to come. This folklore states that this first tree is not a giant sequoia, but in the modern day, the story is used as a means for teaching youth about why trees like the giant sequoia should be respected, as they are all connected back to that which created us. The forests in the southern Sierras have long provided for these people in the ways of food, with nuts and berries, as well as medicines, shelter, and trade items. And when western settlers came seeking gold, they too saw potential value in the giant sequoias, albeit in a more destructive light. Thankfully, the wood of the giant sequoia is actually not that valuable in regards to utility. Compared to the prized redwood, the wood of the sequoia is more fibrous, heavier, and more brittle, which makes it even harder to fell without the tree simply shattering. If anything, the sequoia wood was pretty much just used for things like fence posts and shingles. Between their difficulty to profit off of, as well as increasing amounts of federal land protections, giant sequoia mills didn't exist after the early 20th century. But let's talk about those federal land protections, because there are entire national parks and national forests named after this one tree. And it all started with a newspaper editor in Tulare County, California. George Stewart was born in California during the gold rush, and started his career writing for the Visalia Delta. From his office, he would look out the window to the east, towards those mountains where hidden groves of massive trees grew. And he would think about the fact that these magnificent pieces of wild nature were being turned into fence posts and shingles. What a waste. He decided those groves and the mountains they grew on were worth setting aside, where destructive forces who only sought to deepen their pockets would be replaced by visitors who simply wanted to exist in the same setting as these awe-inspiring wonders. So George made friends in political positions and started fighting for lands to be set aside rather than sold. And a fight it was, because folks who were insistent about making their living off the land did not want his dreams to come true. Using the models made by Yosemite and Yellowstone Valley in decades past, 
George finally saw his efforts reach the U.S. Congress. And thanks to the help of other representatives whose districts weren't even close to the Southern Sierras, the first lands were set aside to become Sequoia National Park in 1890. The bill didn't specifically designate it as a national park at the time, but it essentially gave the land the same protections. George wasn't done there, though. He and his conservationist allies were insistent about protecting as much of these mountains as they could. Again in 1890, another bill was introduced to establish Yosemite as a full national park, since at that time it was still under state jurisdiction. It was actually replaced by a substitute bill that quintupled the size of Yosemite, tripled the size of Sequoia, and introduced a third park bordering Sequoia called General Grant National Park, which was later expanded and renamed Kings Canyon National Park. Here's the thing. To this day, we don't know who wrote that substitute bill. But it ended up passing, and we got even more protections put in place for these incredible sections of the Sierra Nevadas. Fast forward to 1903. The National Park Service wouldn't be established until the next decade, so at this time, the national parks were under the management of the U.S. Army. That summer, Sequoia National Park received a new acting superintendent, Colonel Charles Young. Charles Young was an African-American man born into slavery in Kentucky during the Civil War, who did incredible things considering the racial disparity of that era. Long before civil rights were federally protected, Young graduated from a white high school in Ohio and won an appointment to the military academy at West Point. And in the summer of 1903, he was asked to bring his 96 troops from the all-black cavalry known as the Buffalo Soldiers to help manage Sequoia National Park. At that point, there hadn't been that much work done to establish easy accessibility through the park lands. Only five miles of road had been constructed. Young wanted to change that, and he and his workers used that summer to extend that road to reach prominent locations in the park, like towering sequoia groves and scenic overlooks. And they did it all without making the roads too steep. Young made it so that they, quote, should in future ensure a thousand tourists, where in previous years there had been but a hundred. Local communities insisted that a giant sequoia be named after Charles Young, but he wasn't too fond of that idea. Young thought that the naming of these trees was a monumental act, and that they should be named after those who had made bigger impacts, like Booker T. Washington. He told them to wait 20 years, and if they still felt the same way, then they could name a tree after him. So they waited, and after a few decades, they still felt the same way, and they said, okay, find two unnamed sequoias, that one over there, Charles Young Tree, and that one, Booker T. Washington Tree. Because at the end of the day, Young's efforts to increase access to these massive trees was a monumental act. By 1927, annual visitation at Sequoia National Park was over 100,000. In 2019, 1.2 million people visited the biggest living things on Earth by volume. The efforts of people like Charles Young and George Stewart helped accelerate our movement to establishing the National Park Service and an American tradition to celebrate our public lands. The symbol of the National Park Service is composed of the things this agency protects. Vegetation, wildlife, scenery, recreation, and history. The vegetation is represented by a giant sequoia. If you look at the park ranger uniform, the leather belt and hat bands are imprinted with giant sequoia cones because this tree is such an excellent representation of what the park service exists for.
There was this Scottish-American man you may have heard of who lived around the turn of the 20th century and loved giant sequoia trees. His name was John Muir, and he was instrumental in pushing land preservation into American culture. His words often serve as an inspiration for many people like me who are so deeply moved by the beauty and spirit of the natural world. I'll end this week with some of his wisdom. Walk away quietly in any direction, and taste the freedom of the mountaineer. Camp out among the grasses and gentians of glacial meadows, in craggy garden nooks full of nature's darlings. Climb the mountains and get their good tidings. Nature's peace will flow into you as sunshine flows into trees. The winds will blow their own freshness into you, and the storms their energy, while cares will drop off like autumn leaves. As age comes on, one source of enjoyment after another is closed. But nature's sources never fail. I want to thank all of you for listening to this podcast. If you have the time, leave a review on Apple Podcasts to help us grow. The music is by Academy Garden. You can find more of their stuff on Spotify, iTunes, SoundCloud, Bandcamp. Wherever good music exists, they are there. My cover art is by Brittany Burnett. Find her incredible photography on Instagram at BoomerangBrit. Find me on Twitter or Facebook at MyFavoriteTrees and get updates on future episodes and extra goodies. If you'd like to thank me back, you can do so by donating to your favorite sustainable organization, some of which are listed on my website, mftpodcast.com. Now, go find a tree that you love and give it a hug. Hug.